All right, Acts chapter 4. So we think about boldness, and sometimes when we think about that, we think maybe brashness. We think maybe someone who's aggressive or loud or doesn't back down. And there's only a partial truth to that. The idea of boldness, when it's used, this word's used, boldness in the book of Acts, is this idea of, of bluntness, of being forthright, of, of being confident in what you're saying. It was, it was, it's, it's sort of similar to how Jesus taught. When the, Jesus taught and uh, people were marveled at his teaching because they said he taught with authority, not as the scribes. It's similar to that, except for Jesus spoke on his own authority, and these guys are speaking on Jesus' authority. But there was a boldness in them. They didn't back down. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about boldness because I have to confess to you guys, I'm reading a really good little book on evangelism called Honest Evangelism by a guy named Rico Teist. And I'm really challenged by how little I evangelize. I'm challenged by it. I, 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 don't, I don't shy away from telling people about Jesus, but I also don't always pursue opportunities to tell people about Jesus. And I'm always intentional about that. And, I, and I've been really challenged by this book as to why. Why, why do I sometimes cower or back down? What am, what am I afraid of? What is going on in my heart that that happens? And really what it boils down to is I, I lack boldness. And why do I lack boldness? Well, what we want to see tonight is really how we can see that boldness uh, be developed in our lives. And so I'm going to give you three quick reasons, and then we'll take time to ask questions and stuff afterwards. But the first one is this. Boldness is required because of opposition. And last week, in the first part of chapter 4, Adam did a good job talking about the fact that even when God's doing a great work, there's always going to be opposition to the gospel. We have to know that. We have to know that we're always going to be kind of on the outside. It's just the way it is. We don't like that. We shouldn't glory in that. We shouldn't enjoy that. If we enjoy being marginalized, something's probably wrong with us. But it's a reality. We're going to be marginalized. We're going to be off to the end. And because of that, it requires boldness. We need God to induce this in us, to produce this in us. Now notice it says that these guys, these religious leaders, they, they recognize the boldness of Peter and John. And remember the context here. These guys had uh, gone into the temple to pray. There was a lame man there. They healed the lame man. After they healed the lame man, they preached the gospel. In preaching the gospel, what happens? Uh, these sort of temple police come in there and say, hey, what are you doing? You can't be preaching in Jesus. In the name of Jesus, Jesus needs to stop. Even though 2,000 people became Christians. So pretty radical stuff going on. So as this happens, they basically start preaching to those guys as well and say, well, here's the reality. This Jesus is the uh, chief cornerstone whom you've rejected. He's the Messiah. Basically, as Adam said, they preached the gospel to the Jews again on that day. And so they see this boldness and they 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 think, man, how is this possible? How do these guys who, as it says, are uneducated and untrained, they're just fishermen, you know, this guy was a military zealot. I mean, how do these guys, how do these guys, how are they able to speak with such confidence, such assurance that what they say is true? Where does that come from? And it's interesting they say it, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Now, there's a good chance that these guys re- recognized Peter and John, these temple leaders who were among those probably who uh, condemned Jesus to death and crucified him. They remembered seeing their faces. But also there's something here that reminds us that these guys were impressed with Jesus' influence on these guys. When it says they marveled, the word marvel doesn't just mean like, I don't get it. It means like, wow, these guys are really something. 
So there's, they're impressed. It doesn't mean they're thinking of them positively, but they see something, they go, wow, there's something different about these guys. And they recognize that influence comes from Jesus. It was Jesus' influence on those guys that caused them, on Peter and John, that caused them to have such boldness. It was impossible to ignore. But also the fact that, that God had healed this guy, or this person had been healed, this layman had been healed. It's a supernatural uh, a reality they couldn't deny. They're in this situation where they think, okay, how does this happen? We, we, we see Jesus had an influence on these guys. They had this radical boldness. There's this, been this notable miracle that's been done. We can't deny it. So what are we supposed to do? I know, tell them to stop preaching. We don't want this, as it says to, in verse 17, to spread any further. So we need to tell these guys to stop preaching the name of Jesus. So basically, they make a rule against preaching Jesus. They say, you can't do this anymore. So then in verse 18, when they do this, I'm sorry, in verse 19, when they do this, Peter and John, they answered, and they said, look, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. Now, come on, guys, think about this. We're saying we're speaking in the name of God. Should we really stop talking about God because you tell us to stop talking about God? Really? I mean, that's not going to That's not going to happen. But really, here's what they say in verse 20 that's so powerful. For we cannot but speak the things which we've seen and heard. They said, look, what's happened to us has been so impactful. What we've seen, we, we've seen the miracles that Jesus did. We've seen him raise people from the dead. We heard him predict his own death and resurrection. We saw him uh, after he was risen from the dead. We communicated with him. We listened to his teaching about the kingdom before he ascended to heaven. We saw him ascend to heaven. We experienced the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. How can we not talk about these things? And, and this is, this is, this experience that these guys are talking about, this, this situation they're talking about is exactly where I think we are supposed to be, where God desires his people to be. God wants us to be in a place where we can't but speak of what we've seen and heard. Now, this is where I get challenged. Because the truth is that even just in my own scripture reading, in my own prayer life, even in those things, even when they become more about duty than devotion, even in those things, I've seen and heard a lot. But often I don't have this kind of compulsion, this kind of, we have to talk about this stuff. And I wonder why that is. I wonder what God still needs to do in me, because here's the reality. When there is this kind of opposition, there's either going to be boldness or there's going to be walking away. There's going to be a cowardice. People are going to just kind of say, okay, forget it. We're just not going to deal with it at all. And, and we will be pushed more and more into the margins. Now, in verse 21, it says that these guys basically find no other way of punishing them. They, they, they couldn't really do much to them because uh, the miracle took place. The people that were in the temple praying at that time gave glory to God for that miracle. They, they gave credit to God for actually bringing that miracle. But I want, to, I want you to think about the boldness of these guys for a second, this, this compulsion they had to keep talking. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians. And the context of 2 Corinthians 5 is, is sort of Paul writing to people who think maybe Paul's kind of cracked his nut. You know, he's kind of a bit out there, man. He's really kind of wanting to, he's a bit too much into this Jesus stuff, wanting to tell everybody about it. But he says, listen, he says, I might be mad, but he says, it's for the love of Christ compels us. 
Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And if he died for all, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Paul just says, listen, people might think we're a little bit off base. They might think that we're a little bit nuts, that we really want to tell everybody about Jesus. But here's the reality. If Jesus died for all people, then anybody whom he's died for should be living for him. And we want to preach Christ crucified. We want people to know this Jesus and to follow this Jesus. They were compelled by the love of Christ. You know, when uh, Jesus in the book of Revelation, is talking, to, talking towards uh, the church of Ephesus. And he says to them, you've, you've left your first love. You know, we, we look at that and we think, okay, he, he commends them first. He says to them, you know, you, you, uh, you know you're, you're really, your doctrine's good and you don't put up with false prophets. That's all really great stuff. But I have this thing against you. You've left your first love. And it's easy to take that and say, okay, they've left their first love. They've left their love for God. It was, they should be loving God and not just being concerned about these other things. Those things should flow from their love for God. But is that really the first love that we have? Is the first love that we experience as believers our love for God? No. It's God's love for us. It's God's love for us. Paul writes to the Ephesians church, he prays for them, and he says, I pray that you would know the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of God's love for you, that which surpasses knowledge, that you would know that. And I, and I wonder if we are, are maybe just, it's just easier for us to kind of do our religious thing and approach Scripture and get alone with God and kind of think, yeah, I've read the Bible today, ticked off the box. I've said my prayers today, tick off the box. And we don't want to just take the time Turn off the telly and sit with him. And, and let him remind us of the greatness of his love. Meditate. Think about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Think about the fact that God would so love the world that he would send his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's God's love for us. It's Christ's love for us that compels us towards this boldness. And the more opposition we have, the more we have to kind of cross that pain barrier. That, oh man, I'm going to have to look like an idiot right now. Or I really need to say something right now. And they're going to look at me sideways. The more we have to do it, the more we realize the only thing that's going to motivate us is not our love for God. It's God's love for us. That's what motivates our love for God in the first place, right? We love because he first loved us. And so it's, it's, boldness is required because of opposition, and the boldness that's going to come is only going to come as we recognize, as we're compelled by God's love for us. So then in verse 23, what happens? These guys, they go back to uh, their brothers and sisters. They tell them what the chief priests uh, are saying. Look, they're saying we can't preach Jesus anymore. So what's the first thing they do? Let's call the Senate. Let's get a petition. Let's get as many signatures as possible to make sure that we can get what we need. It's our right to preach the gospel. Is that what they did? They prayed. <laughs> they get together and they pray. And I love how they pray. Because it starts off by saying, so when they heard that, they raised their voice in one accord and they said, Lord, you are God. Interesting, the word they use for Lord here in verse 24 is a Greek word uh, where we get the English word despot. 
It means absolute ruler. It means nobody dare do anything that that person doesn't want done. Despot. It's kind of weird that that would be a word that they would use to describe their Lord. They would use it to describe God. But it's important they're recognizing, listen, no matter what these guys say, you are the absolute ruler. You are God. You've created everything. And we need to do what you say. Now, the thing that we need to recognize is if we're going to be bold, if we're going to have this confidence in God, it's going to be received through prayer. Uh, And that prayer has to be motivated by who God is. I mean, the first part of prayer, the first most important aspect of prayer is knowing who you're talking to. It really is. I mean, we want to know what's the words, what's the formula, how how much should be asking, how much should be thanking. And and those things can be helpful, but the reality is we just need to remember who we're talking to. The creator of the universe, the absolute ruler, the one who is and was and is to come. We're talking to him. And so they, they, they talk to him. And they begin to quote Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. They say, out of your mouth of your servant David, uh, David has said, Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings took their earth, kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now, the psalm that they're referring to is, David, when he wrote that, was probably thinking about his own opposition to a sense. Like, okay, these guys are opposing me. God's anointed me to be king. Why are so many people opposing me? But there's no doubt that it had a prophetic significance. There's no doubt it points to Jesus the Christ. Okay? Christ being anointed one. And, and it points out this, this reality that God's rule has always been resisted. There's always been opposition to God's rule. Whenever God sets up an authority, people push back against it. We don't like authority at all. And people push back against that. And so they're saying, Lord, this is the way it's always been. And the fact they even bring up this issue in verse 27 of the, of the reality of when Jesus died. You know, when your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, he's the anointed one, the Christ. It talks about both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and Israel, gathering together to basically to crucify him. Now, you might not know this, but Herod and Pontius Pilate were actually political enemies before the crucifixion of Jesus. The Bible's really clear about that. These guys were enemies, and then because of the crucifixion of Jesus, they became friends that day. Oh, we have something in common. We both want to see this guy dead. We want to get him off our back. And the same with the Gentiles and and the people of Israel. They would not have gathered together to unify around things. The Israelites felt like, you guys are in our land. You're occupying our land. You're ruling us when this should be our, our land that God gave us. The Gentiles looked at the Jews as if they were a bit off their rocker. But they again gathered together. Why? To come against Jesus. But what does it say in verse 28? They came together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined to be done. In other words, whatever they wanted to do is only what you allow them to do. So here's the point. When they're praying, they're not just praying to the God who they know, the God who is, but also, listen, they're praying to the God who has an unstoppable plan. And this should motivate our prayers. We're not saying, God, what's going to happen? We know what's going to happen. Everything's going to fall apart. As if God's lost control somehow. I mean, I know it feels that way. It feels like sometimes that that things are out of God's control. Everything's falling apart because they're not in our control. But God has not lost control. He's still on the throne. He still has a perfect plan. I don't want to say he has an easy plan. 
I'm not saying his plan includes us always getting what we want or being happy, but he does have a perfect plan to bring glory to his son's name, to bring good to us through his son. He has this perfect plan, and it can't be thwarted. And this is why we pray. If we're going to have boldness, we have to pray to God that way. Okay, God, no one can stop what you do. No one can stop what you want done. We're going to pray to you that way. Sometimes I think what we do is we, we, we pray to fate. We sort of pray like, well, whatever's going to be is going to be. And we think that's the same as praying to a God who's sovereign, but it's not. Because God's sovereignty means God does whatever he wants. It doesn't mean God set out a plan of every single moment of every single day and that always is going to happen. No, that's fate. That's fatalism. Now, we believe in a God who interjects anytime he wants, who overrides all things. So we say to him, Lord, you're in control. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want. So we're going to ask you to do what's best. Here's what we think it might be. And so we're asking for this. And God can do whatever he wants. That's the God we pray to. And so they keep praying, verse 29. They say, now, Lord, look at their threats and grant your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. By stretching out your hands to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, notice what they're praying for. They're not praying for power to escape the persecution. They're praying for power to endure it. They're praying for power to to still be witnesses during it, to still be able to testify of God during it. Think about that. They're saying, God, okay, you know their threats. They tell us we have to stop talking, so we need more boldness. (laughs) We need the confidence in you and the confidence in who Jesus is and what he's done. We need a supernatural confidence to be able to say what you want us to say. So they pray this, right? They're praying for signs and wonders to be done. Now, again, not so much for the signs and wonders themselves, but to encourage the boldness to speak the truth about God. And it says what happens in verse 31. And when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. Now, can you imagine if we started praying right now and the building started shaking? That might get our attention. Now, if we were in California, we wouldn't think anything of it because buildings shake all the time. But, I mean, it's interesting here because the, the Bible talks about in the book of Hebrews about how God is shaking things up, so to speak, now, so that the kingdom that cannot be shaken remains. All those things kind of fall away, and that kingdom that can't be shaken remains. And he's definitely given a manifestation of his power to encourage these guys. And it says specifically that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, this is it. If we're going to receive boldness, we're going to have to receive it through prayer. And it's important that we understand, okay, we know who we're praying to. We know he has an unstoppable plan. And we also know that he answers prayer. God, we need boldness. What does God do? We need power for boldness. What does God do? He comes upon him by the Holy Spirit. Now, I think it's really important for us to understand something about this. There's a difference between being sealed by the Holy Spirit, which happens when we get saved, and being filled with the Spirit, which continually happens after we're saved. Okay? In the book of Ephesians, Paul says, In him, speaking of Jesus, in him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also having believed, notice you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Paul goes on to say the Holy Spirit's your guarantee, basically, that you are going to be, uh, you're going to see God in heaven. Now, now here's the reality, okay? Every person 
who, who is a Christian, who has been born again, has the Spirit of God dwelling in them. They're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's God's Spirit who, who drew them to Jesus in the first place. It's God's Spirit who showed them that they needed to believe in Jesus. And it's God's Spirit who gave them new life when they put their faith in Jesus, when they trusted in Jesus. It's God's Spirit who does that for every one of us as a Christian. And we're sealed. And in my mind, this is, a, this, this is God saying, listen, once God has you, the Spirit's presence in you is the guarantee you're going to make it. The guarantee you're going to be made into the image of Jesus, okay? So everyone is sealed. But we also need to be filled. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation or wastefulness, but be, I, notice I put be, being filled with the Holy Spirit, because... The, the, the way that word is, it's, like, it's in a, a tense of being continuous. We need to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's a sense of the Holy Spirit dwells in us, but we need Him to fill us, to give us power. We need Him to strengthen us to do the things that He's called us to do. Now, I also want to point out that we're going to see all throughout the book of Acts that every time God fills His people with His Spirit, they know it. They know it happened. And, and to me, this is important. It's important because what can happen is we can tell ourselves, okay, as long as I believe in Jesus, as long as I understand the right things, that's all that really matters. Now, I'm not downplaying how important it is for us to know the Bible, how important it is for, have, for us to know good doctrine. But what I'm saying is, these guys recognized they needed something beyond just a proper understanding. They needed power. They needed power to be his witnesses. They couldn't do it on their own. They knew that. And they knew that God had to give it to them. They knew they needed the power of God. They, remember, many of these guys had already experienced Pentecost. They had already experienced Pentecost. Peter and John were obviously there at Pentecost. So they'd always already had that the kind of initial experience of God's coming upon power, but they needed more. It wasn't like, oh, that's enough. I had that one-time experience. Everything's sorted. They still needed God's ongoing power in their life. They needed to be surrendered to the power of God. And God answered that prayer and filled them with their spirit. I think because we are so cautious about some things that, that have been involved in, in some churches that we think are unhealthy. We've seen things that we think that's not healthy, that's not something we want to pursue. We don't see that in Scripture. But because of that caution, sometimes we can be slow to recognize that we need power, that we need the power of God to be who He wants us to be. And so we're slow to ask for that power, to be witnesses. I don't know if it's we're afraid of what how God might manifest Himself if we pray that, because we don't need to be afraid of that. You, you know, it, it, both in my experience and what I see in Scripture, God's not going to do something to you or, or have you experience something that, uh, that, you, that you're not going to want. He, he's not going to do that. I mean, even when we have specific gifts, like we talk about, the Bible talks about the gift of prophecy. The Bible says the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. So it's not as if the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You're going to start talking about God. You're not going to be able to shut up. I can't stop talking. I can't stop talking. The Holy Spirit's making me do this. It's not going to happen. That's not God's spirit if that's happening. Okay, There have been movements that say that, people laughing uncontrollably or doing whatever the case might be, and they say, I can't stop, I can't stop, it's got to be the Holy Spirit. No, if you can't stop, it's not the Holy Spirit. But what I am talking about is us being open to what God wants to do, to pray ourselves and to pray for one another that we have this kind of boldness. Now, quickly moving on. 
So these guys, they needed boldness. They, they, they saw it was required because of the opposition. They received that boldness through prayer. But I wanted, I wanted to connect the last part of chapter 4, even though it easily could connect to the first part of chapter 5. I wanted to connect this in this context uh, of boldness, because I think this is an important thing that we need to see. It says, Now the multitude of those who believe were of one heart and one soul, and neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they all had, they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and with great grace was upon them all. There's a lot of stuff there. When it talks about being of one heart and one mind, one Greek scholar said that the best way to explain that phrase and what he means by that phrase is they, they were in harmony in their thoughts and their affections. So that these guys were in a place where they're, they're, they were thinking the same thing. They were wanting the same thing. They were loving the same things. They had the same kind of desires together. That's an awesome, that's an awesome place to be. I don't know if you've ever even been in a single meeting that's like that. When you're in a prayer meeting or maybe in a, a worship time or in a Bible study and you know God's just, just speaking to everyone the same way. We're hearing the same thing. We're going, yes, we want, yes, God, we want this. And there's a harmony there. It's an amazing thing. This is what he's talking about. These guys were in the situation. And as it's going on, it, 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 it describes things like this great power that the apostles had in giving witness to the resurrection. In other words, they weren't just passing out information. Here's a track. Think about this. I mean, there was power in the things that they spoke. There was a, there's a great influence. In fact, when it talks about a great grace was upon them, it's probably a reference of grace is like favor. So it's probably a reference of both they were receiving grace from God or favor from God, but also they were having favor among the people. People were going, man, there's something about these guys. We want to hear what they have to say. Now, so these guys are experiencing this, and this is more than what we'd call natural affection. This is more than just, hey, we're in the same house group, so we've gotten really close. This is way bigger than that, isn't it? It's good to be in the same house groups. It's good for us to be in house groups, but this is bigger than that, isn't it? This is something supernatural that God's producing. And I think this is important because when it comes to boldness, God wants to reinforce this confidence that we have in Him and His gospel. He wants to reinforce it by love. By this, this supernatural uh, 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 commitment that we have one to another. Something the Holy Spirit produces in us. It's not an easy thing. In fact, it's an impossible thing. It's not something that we can produce on our own. But God, by the Spirit, wants to produce us. And I know everyone sort of talks about love. Oh, it's all about love. All we need is love. Dun, da, 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 da. We all talk about that. But the reality is we're not talking about just some sort of, again, natural affection or we all get along. We're talking about something the Holy Spirit's producing where we all want the same things. We all love the same things because we all want Jesus. We all love Jesus and we want Jesus to be preached. And so we are committed one to another. And that showed itself, listen, in something that was more than just practical generosity. These guys were willing to practically, monetarily, lay down their lives for each other. It says none of them thought that uh, what they had was their own. They, 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 look, this is just for, to bless God's people. Whatever we have, we want God to use it as he wants. It says in verse 34, nor was there any among them who lacked for all were possessors of lands and houses, sold them. They brought the proceeds, the things that were sold, and they laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed them to anyone who had need. Now, again, this shows me a work of the Holy Spirit, because I've been in ministry for over 20 years, and I've never seen this, I've never seen any healthy church 
this much confidence in leadership. I've seen dodgy churches where people were manipulated and just going, pastor can have whatever money he wants. That's dodgy. We're talking about a healthy situation where these guys were going, you know what? We trust that God's doing something. He's spreading the gospel. The word of God is impacting people's lives. So, you know what? I have that land. I'm going to sell it. You guys just give it where you think there's need. That, that's pretty radical. The only other time I see this happening anywhere in Scripture is when they were rebuilding the temple and they had to take an offering. And I can't remember where it is. Now I just lost it. But they, they take this offering and they basically finally have to say, okay, don't give any more money because we have, nothing, we, we have no place to put it. Now, that's pretty radical. These guys were, were experiencing this, right? And it's, it's, to me it's important too because they mention here Barnabas. And of course Luke wants to introduce Barnabas to us for what's about to take place in the, in the near chapters uh, of, of Acts. But I love the fact that they, they, they call him the son of encouragement. His name, Barnabas, it actually translates son of a prophet. But one of the parts of one of the um, designs of prophecy is to encourage people. To give them courage. That's what it means to encourage. To put courage in someone. To give them courage to do what they want to do. And this is what's supposed to happen. And I have to say, when the Holy Spirit is working in people's lives so that they love each other this way and they give to one another this way, people see that and they are encouraged to make more sacrifices for the gospel. Now, this is boldness. This is what I believe God wants to produce in us. This is what I think we need to pray for. This is not, uh, this is not for us to be condemned, but to be challenged. To us to be challenged and say, Lord, you can do this. You can give us this kind of boldness. You can help us to get past that pain threshold, to have confidence in the gospel, even when there's opposition. Amen.